Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage episode. And what a strange and yet clarifying week in federal politics we've seen. Having made their decision somewhat uncertainly, it must be said, uh, at the last election, Australian voters uh, might now be thinking, well, we dodged a bullet. Uh, After all, Labor had the lowest primary vote of any incoming government in Australian history. And yet now we see polls showing that uh, there's a poll out today as we record this podcast, for example, in the nine papers showing that the preferred PM ratings between Anthony Albanese and Peter Dutton are 55-17 in favour of Anthony Albanese and Labor's primary vote is up at about 42%. Um, So uh, I guess that's the value for a new government. There's a honeymoon period as well, but the value for a new government of having Polls like that going on when there's a major story going, major story running about uh, the previous government and some pretty bizarre activity that was being taken undertaken by the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison. And that's really going to be the subject of what we're talking about today, I guess. It's been dominating federal politics. And as we speak, uh, the Cabinet is considering the advice from the Solicitor General. So we don't have the advantage of having seen that yet. But, you know, there's, we can talk about the, uh, the the broad issues that are in play here. And uh, and we're about to do just that. So joining me to discuss these matters is, as usual, Dr. Maria Tflaga from the uh, School of Politics and International Relations. She's a political scientist, director of the Australian Centre for Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. I should get that right, Maria? Yes, thank you. Hello. Good to have you with us again, of course. And it's a very warm welcome back to Kieran Gilbert, Sky News Chief Anchor, uh, a, a semi-regular on this podcast, always a welcome guest, a very prescient observer of politics and one of the people who called much more accurately than many others uh, the election result when um, Anthony Albanese's campaign was, I, I guess, beset by, um, you know, by some... Uh, Tremulous performances on the on the campaign trail, Kieran. But you kept your eyes on the fundamentals and uh, called it on this podcast. 
said you thought Labor was going to win, and, and indeed they did. Nice to be here, Mark. Thank you. And uh, Maria, hi to you. It's uh, always fun to join you. Um, now, Kieran, I noticed that uh, John Howard was back in town last week. Uh, I, I attended a uh, an event at the press club, Virginia Hausiger. My wife was um, was emceeing that, was interviewing him in a uh, sort of meet the author situation because of his new book, A Sense of Balance. But it seemed to me there was also a sense of closure almost about John Howard being back in town because we'd just seen this long period of coalition. It wasn't his government, of course. His government had been ended by, by Kevin Rudd in 2007, but... As I wrote in a piece uh, a couple of days ago, there was a sort of a feeling of Howard being back in town to sort of sell off the remaining assets of the now, you know, now insolvent franchise. Um, I mean, Morrison, as 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 Howard was here, Morrison's uh, bizarre appointments to the cabinet had, uh, you know, exploded all over the news. And Howard began by trying to play it down, but by the end of the week, by the time he was in the National Press Club, he was saying, well, I wouldn't have done it and uh, it's pretty bizarre and I don't blame the Governor-General for making clear that he had an expectation that these appointments would be made public and so forth. But, yeah, it just felt to me like there was a sort of an almost a, a poetic symmetry about about Howard being there, partly as a, as I say, closing off the franchise, but also as a kind of contrast in a way because Howard was so solid as a prime minister whether you liked him or not he was he was a very solid sort of prime minister and lasted for you know best part of a dozen years whereas we now know about Morrison that he was very very flimsy and unpredictable yeah absolutely i think that makes a lot of sense that comparison mark and the former prime minister john howard also was Pretty blunt about the Morrison government's lack of reform agenda. That's why, in large part, he thought they they lost is because their their lack of a, a plan. And uh, you can say a lot of things about John Howard, but at least he had some some guts to make reforms where necessary. You think back to well the immediate response in terms of the the gun buyback, mm. but also the GST in ninety eight. He almost lost the election, but he thought. If you're going to win, you've got to do something with it. And I don't think the most recent Liberal coalition government had any uh, anything of the sort when it comes to that sort of reform no, agenda. And that's it why didn't. it fell over, because you leave a vacuum, it gets filled with other things. Yeah, and, and in fact, it was sort of um, camouflaged, Maria, wasn't it, really, in the sense that um, you know Morrison won that 2019 election uh, not expecting to win. No one expected the coalition to win. Perhaps he did himself, because we now know he had a, an even bigger messiah complex than we thought. But um, nonetheless, uh, they they won that election, really just promising the you know the tax cut package that they'd already been advocating, and 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 not much more. And the agenda was kind of saved in a sense. If you know, it's a callous way of putting it, I guess. But the pandemic came along and gave the government a lot of things to do. But absent that, there wasn't really a lot that that government stood for. Ah, oh, well, I mean, I, I think you've summed it up really well there. I guess I would add like uh, two things. One, well, we all should like not forget. Um, because I think there is a bit of a habit that we do that, you know, I mean, Howard lost the 2007 election because he did too many things, you know. Like he he tried to initiate a whole bunch of reforms that people didn't like. Um, so it's not like he ever really stopped doing anything, um, but we could argue over whether or not the things he did, uh, you know, were right or whether or he had to make difficult trade-offs as he had to in the first half of his prime ministership. What I think is um, – I guess really interesting about the the Morrison government being, I mean, you know, mainly put a do nothing government, is that 
we sort of saw over the life of that government and to be blunt the the coalition since it took power in 2017 like a slow and and casual um and blithy uh diminution of respect for i guess the sort of institutional norms that underpin the system of government and 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 i think scott morrison has a, has a pattern that actually predates his being prime minister of of yeah not sort of respecting those conventions and why they essentially exist right and it's sort of culminated in this crisis around him appointing himself to all of these portfolios and and the reason why that is so troubling is because you know it effectively really does put up in lights the way that our system of government, right, the way we maintain our separation of powers, which is in effect through parliamentary accountability, the way those systems have all been eroded over the last 30 years through things like the the way that career paths have changed for politicians, the way the public service has been increasingly um, politicised or, um, you know, made more subject to giving less contested advice or, you know, politicians procuring advice that they want to hear. And then, you know, in more recent times, and Scott Morrison was a major proponent of this, essentially delegitimizing the function of other political elites, i.e. the media, to hold him to account and get him to answer questions because Parliament seemed to be largely incapable of doing this and has been for a long time. Yeah, it's a really good point um, because there's so many forces that have been going on almost concurrently over time, Kieran, that have been kind of eating away at at the at the protections and the conventions, notions of uh, probity and honour, and um, um, ministers being seen to act appropriately, not just acting appropriately, but maintaining the, the, the understanding that there's a need to maintain public confidence and therefore responding even when there might be a question, even if they uh, might personally feel that they haven't done anything wrong. I mean, we think back to the, one of the, you know, sort of obvious uh, comparisons is the um, the Paddington Bear matter that happened with Mick Young back in, I think it was about 1984, when, you know, he, he stood down from the ministry because he came back into the country with a Paddington Bear, that is a teddy bear, uh, it wasn't even in his luggage, it was in his wife's luggage and they hadn't paid, you know, import duty on it, which would have amounted to about a dollar thirty or less. Um and and the minister steps down during that period, uh, because because the public confidence was a question that needed to be uh, needed to be um, taken into account that ministers aren't above the law and so forth. And we compare that to the sorts of attitudes that apply now whenever ministers are found to have uh, bent the rules and uh, lent into things and interfered in in processes like uh, the allocation of grants and so forth, and there's no sanction. I mean, just because a lot of these things were conventions, they've just they, they're, you can just walk straight through them, just pretend they're not there. They're like, in, they're like sort of invisible guardrails, just walk through them. The, the This might be... A- a little premature for this, but I, I think th- this whole episode could end up being a blessing in disguise for our our system. That it's uh, it's shown a vulnerability there, and I totally agree with everything you've said in terms of the way that the conventions have been gradually sort of eroded in terms of the respect with which they're held and, and treated. This will help codify the 
declaration, at least when it comes to ministerial responsibilities, the response to this legal advice and to the whole episode, I would imagine, will be an attempt at some point to censure Scott Morrison in the parliament, but also to make it clear that if there's any change in ministerial arrangements, that it needs to be gazetted tabled in the parliament. I thought that was the case anyway, because you know you and mm. I would have been in parliament hundreds of times mm. where administrative arrangements have changed and the prime minister of the day announces it. But that's obviously not always the case because as we've seen in this scenario, it can happen um, without the, the public eye, which has to be uh, has to be fixed. I think the other thing here, which I find really interesting as sort of sidebar to that core question about the way our system works is the way the response. So uh, I don't know whether this is an issue where the vast majority of Australians are fully across the detail or, but I think it has punctured the, the consciousness to a, to an extent. I think that those memes and the various other things that people go, oh, what was he on about? What mm. a weirdo, you know, mm. going for every other job under the sun. But the, the really potent blowback here has been from his colleagues, yeah. current and former, who have just been ropeable. Yeah. And it sort of goes to the whole heart of this collective government that we have in Australia, in Australia cabinet government. Yeah. And they felt that they'd personally been slighted, but I think fundamentally as well, they recognised that it was also undermining that collective yeah. government, which is at the heart of our system. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and we, if we think back to 2020, right, when the um, pandemic was taking off, and okay, you can make the argument, as a lot of people have, that uh, we didn't know how bad the, uh, the virus was going to be. There were warnings that potentially millions of people could die, even millions of people in Australia could die, theoretically. Uh, there was no vaccine at that stage. Uh, um, Hubei uh, province in, in China was effectively locked down. I think more than effectively, it was actually locked down. People were, you know... Uh, detained in their homes and so forth. The police were going around. It was it was a severe response. And the government looks at what powers the health minister has under the Biosecurity Act, and it turns out Greg Hunt could have pretty much done the same thing in Australia, ordered whole cities locked down and all kinds of things. And so you can make an argument that, um, you know, um, Morrison looks at that and thinks, right, well, these are some pretty extreme powers. You know, they, they, they would fundamentally reshape Australians' understanding of government. They would remove uh, rights that we associate with liberal democracy completely. Uh, and we need to have some checks and balances here, some plurality, as it were, uh, as you, you know, the sort of thing you get from cabinet. Um, that doesn't get you anywhere, though, in explaining why you would keep it secret. It doesn't get you anywhere in explaining why it had to be Morrison, although I think you could make a case that as the person chairing National Cabinet and you know all that, that there's some continuity argument that the Prime Minister has, but that continuity would still be there because he'd still be Prime Minister, uh, even with someone else, even if it was Christian Porter who was acting Health Minister and or someone else, right? So you can, you can get around some of these things in the early stages of it, uh, but you can't explain the secrecy at any point because secrecy is anathema to, antithetical to, um, to our system of, of, of responsible government. And you can't explain deceiving the cabinet, because as you say, cabinet government is fundamental. And at a time when the parliament was on light duties, as it were, because you, know, you couldn't bring it back together, then the collective process of cabinet government becomes the people's last line of defence against tyranny, effectively. Um, and yet we have the prime minister assuming these powers, 
and then going on and getting other powers from other ministers who he believes have powers outside, of, you know, that aren't answerable directly to cabinet. Um, so he's got the cabinet under control. He's got the ministers under control that uh, he thinks have these other powers, and he's not telling anyone. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary situation. I think uh, Maria um, Kieran's probably right that a good many people aren't as animated about this as perhaps they, uh, perhaps we might be, and perhaps um, many people in Parliament might be. But it is a very important issue, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I do think um, it should hopefully prompt a, a broader discussion about how we currently share power and how the chains of accountability actually kind of function in our system because what this uh, whole scenario has pointed to is is the sort of consequence, right, of the breakdown of some of these norms. But Morrison appointing himself to a, a number of ministries, like just resolving that doesn't actually deal with the sort of systemic kinds of uh, issues that that are at play, and um, and you know part of this is to do with sort of the health of of political parties and their their function in the political system. And so, I mean, in the literature, we, we would call this the sort of presidentialization, the presidentialization mm. of politics, which which really what it means is is that party leaders have been able to concentrate more and more power in their um, hands, and so the rage of Morrison's cabinet makes a lot of sense in in this context when you think about it because it's not just that he has encroached upon their you know rightful and legal duties but it is sort of the logical end step of a long running process where the point of being a minister or a shadow minister your ability to influence policy to influence outcomes to be the decision maker and the decider to be part of a collective cabinet governing process is increasingly eroded because it, everything is sort of channeled into the hands of one person. And, you know, if we take this back to be even more abstract, well, you know, why don't we have kings anymore? Because we have recognised that it's not a very good system of government and the sort of concentration, like, I mean, I'm being a little bit extreme here, but that is actually why this ultimately matters, right? Because not maintaining these guardrails and not maintaining the, the, the sort of points of contestability in the system is in effect undoing the whole point, the whole reason why we developed parliamentary yeah. institutions over several centuries. You know, yeah. th just to pick up something Maria said there, and I, I totally agree with everything she said, including the the fact that, that his colleagues, Morrison's colleagues, felt would have felt that and did feel that uh, their own scope over over policy and govern, government was diminished by the moves that he made. But also, if we go back to a, the very human level here, that they um, have looked at this and thought, he didn't. He didn't trust me to do the job. That's mm. fundamentally mm. The, the the reaction. And if we go back to 2021, and and I know we, um, my colleague and I, um, Andrew Clennell reported on, and and over a number of days, uh, it caused a little bit of a, a tension within the government at the time, at the highest levels between Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg. But Andrew and I reported uh, that that uh, the Prime Minister had doubted uh, Josh Frydenberg's capacity at different times and privately was was critical. And then at the same time, 
he had took on greater powers. Mm. And so Frydenberg is furious now, absolutely ropeable yeah. at the way that this is managed. Scott Morrison says, oh, they're great mates and all that sort of stuff. But I've been deeply suspicious of that. I wouldn't be taking uh, that too You know, credibly. on election night, uh, even on election night, when it was becoming clear that uh, that Josh Frydenberg had lost Kuyong, and Morrison is stating there almost theatrically going over the top of what a great mate, a brother that Josh Frydenberg is, that, you know, that they're soulmates and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And he said it again the, the other day, uh, you know, that we'll be friends forever. Um, you don't treat friends like that. You don't deceive them. And, and also in a political sense, yeah. he lost Kuyong because of Scott Morrison well, that, and, that Peter, my, that, and Peter Dutton as well yeah, because yeah, of the China yeah. reaction and, and Scott Morrison purely his own – the fact that he was toxic in Kuyong, yeah, that's why and that he lost was my it. that was my sense of it. Even at that moment on election night, I thought, you know, this over the top praise of of Frydenberg almost looked to me like he was trying to draw him so close that it made it very hard for Frydenberg to come out and say, "I lost Kuyong because of you," which he largely did. I mean, I think Frydenberg had some baggage over some comments that he made during the Melbourne lockdowns when some Victorians felt that he had sort of sided with New South Wales or sided with the federal government against Victoria and there was there was some sentiment about that. But there was a lot of issues, you know, substantive policy issues that the government was carrying that Morrison had had, you know, direct control over and Frydenberg would have done differently um, and, uh, you know, in the space of integrity, in the space of the treatment of women in politics, in the in the, in the the way they handle the and, climate and China, change question. China. And China. The, the, the yeah. population of Chinese Australians in Kuyong is high teens. It's nearly 20%. Yeah. So that is a massive number yeah. in, an, a, in a, uh, an election race that was lost by, I think, 3%. Yeah. And, and Morrison, to have Frydenberg come out and say to, uh, you know, publicly to say that, you know, we lost because Morrison was deeply and profoundly unpopular and a terrible prime minister would not have been very good for Scott Morrison. So he was manipulating that, it seemed to me, uh, even even on election night and since. And, you know, perhaps it's worked. I mean, you know, people say uh, Josh Frydenberg's ropeable and so forth, but he's been very mute. He's been very – he hasn't said anything publicly. So, mm. you know, perhaps it's worked. We'll, we'll just take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, there are so many aspects of this as well. Uh, we've, we've talked about it in sort of the, some of the principles around it. Um, 
there's a few aspects I'd like to go to. The role of Keith Pitt, and this does sort of dovetail in with our discussion about ministerial standards and conventions, uh, codes of conduct, uh, what is expected of ministers, what how, how the how the um, system of uh, responsibility and loyalty, uh, confidence uh, flows in both directions. It strikes me, and I, this has been an underplayed uh, aspect of the, of the coverage of this issue, but there are two things to say about the the pit thing, uh, that is the, the ministry that Morrison actually did intervene in to stop that PEP 11 project off the uh, New South Wales coast, gas ex- exploration project, which he stopped. One is that um, is that Pitt f- finds out about this and has the Prime Minister make the decision for him. In just about any previous government that I've known of, that would have brought the Minister's resignation on principle. The Prime Minister has just expressed no confidence in you as the Minister, as a Cabinet Minister. Right? You have these powers, he has assumed them. Uh, you resign. That's the honourable thing to do. You say, the minute I no longer have the Prime Minister's confidence. And, this, and think about what would have happened had he done so. This whole thing would have come out while they were in government. Um, Quite, quite an extraordinary situation. And we had Barnaby Joyce saying uh, to, to our mate David Spears um, on, uh, on Insiders on Sunday, just openly saying, well, we didn't do that because, we, you know, I didn't arc up about it because uh, we already had a ministry over our allocation and we were going to lose that ministry. And, you know, I mean, just the sort of naked self-interest of it. No, no pretense about the national interest or even the policy question uh, that the Nats uh, take a different view from the Libs on. So I think that was extraordinary. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was extraordinary. Uh, it sort of shows the end game, right, of what happens when the sole concern is about maintaining power for power's sake with, with you know, I mean, I, I think Barnaby and the National Party did have a purpose in the sense that they wanted to maximise their influence so they could extract as much as possible from the Australian state and the Australian taxpayer. But, you know, what what has been kind of, I guess, characteristic of Morrison's government is, is to essentially promote the retention of power above hmm. nearly, nearly every goal. And not and, even and, to hide it anymore, really. I mean, that was just sort of yes. that, that was put like it was a logical explanation for a for for an outcome that the nationals were opposed to in a policy sense, and for an outcome in which their minister had been effectively neutered. The the, the, the minister's authority had been usurped by the prime minister because the prime minister did not trust his minister to uh, to to enact policy that uh, in the way that he wanted it done well and if you think about it it's it's actually the the logical end point mm. of a set of arguments that he made as prime minister to justify his actions across many domains about well he you know his understanding of the electorate of the quiet australians the yeah. the australians that really matter was so profound that he could be trusted to act in their interest and and in doing so act in the national interest right um but you know i mean i think what is so fascinating about this whole saga is that it it highlights this huge contradiction in this man between someone who is desperate to control and micromanage every aspect but who is desperate to avoid any blame you know that naturally comes with it you know and his, <laughs> desperate, his comment, desperate to involve himself in every detail and still not do but, anything but yeah to claim all the credit but but none of the 
of the blame, which yeah. I find fascinating because no one is in, infallible and I don't even think he would think he was infallible, but that sort of self-pitying tone around every drop of rain, mm. you know, like I just – yeah, this is the comment where he said, well, I was responsible for – everyone thought I was responsible for every drop of rain, every new strain of the virus, so I might have might as well have carried the decision-making power for it as well. That was effectively what he was saying. And when, when you look at the uh, sort of that episode around the Keith Pitt thing, it, to me it just reeks of a, another symptom um, of a government that had well and truly hit its use-by date. Yeah. And and it goes back to what, what you said initially in your comments there about just wanting to hold office for – for the sake of it, and uh, it, it makes me think of a, a phrase that's been used a, around the, the halls of parliament around Scott Morrison as prime minister that he was the effectively a state secretary in the lodge that, that he just was there to win and, yeah. and to hold on to power. Um, yeah. There was no, and it, again, as John Howard criticised himself for the Morrison government, there was no reform agenda. So, mm. what was it all about? It was about holding on to. To power, uh, you know, you could probably defend the initial moves, as you said at the start of the podcast, about at the height of the pandemic, you could say, okay, this is extraordinary times under the Biosecurity Act, we need to do this and that. But if you're upfront about it, fine. But then subsequently, a year later, taking mm. Josh Frydenberg's uh, sort of authority mm. secretly, yeah. um, he's living with him a couple yeah. of months later at the lodge, doesn't tell him. and. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. And then the resources thing, which really, regardless of the merits of the proposal, is just incredible in that it's um, got nothing to do with the pandemic. There no, is no and, justification. Well, that's why right. it's got that. nothing to do with the pandemic. And the other, the other thing is, I think people have been looking at that decision the wrong way. I mean, it's been looked at as uh, the way Morrison wants to look at it, which is that there was only one time he used these extraordinary powers that he'd, he'd acquired. There was only one time and it was that time. That's his sort of argument for it, and mostly that seems to have been the way it's been framed. I think the better way of looking at it is as the pointer to what he does when he wants to assume, when he wants to usurp a minister. So we actually know what he would have done to those other ministers by virtue of what he did to Keith Pitt at that moment. He'd he'd, he'd secretly taken responsibility for, you know, assumed the ministerial commission. And then when there was a decision that he wanted to control, because he already had the cabinet largely under control, but these were ministers exercising ex what we might call extra cabinet powers, powers that did not require the say-so of cabinet. And so for those ministers, Morrison has sworn himself in. And in the case of Pitt, when, when, when the decision's looming, Morrison steps in and what takes it, it. What does it say about those closest to him, closest advisors uh, at the time, whether it be yeah. at the top of his department or in his office, that well, they, I'm they glad could not at say to him, you need to tell at least your colleagues, if you're not going to be public about it, you've got to at least share well, with your cabinet well, colleagues why, what you're why, doing. And, but why not be public about it? I mean, no, going, should, going, going back been. to your point uh, a minute ago, though, Kieran, uh, where you said, you know, about um, at the early days of the, you know, the pandemic and, uh, you know, the, the emergency uh, sort of provisions and the atmosphere at the time, it actually would have served the government quite well to say, this government is on top of every detail, right? And we're even making contingency arrangements. Should one of the cabinet or some of the cabinet be sick, we've got we've got uh, ready mm. to go commissions. People are being uh, kept in the loop. We will have continuity. Yeah, we will fine. have representation. People would have thought, well, that's a government mm. on the front foot, right? Yeah. That wouldn't have freaked people out. As no. as um, 
I think Sam Maiden made the point the other day, um, you know, there were all kinds of, you know, extraordinary things happening. Uh, the fact that the government was p- preparing itself for the, the virus to come yeah. through would not have freaked people out. No. Um, it would have just looked like a government that was, uh, you know, thinking realistically and preparing for the worst so that, you know, so that it could keep on on governing. But this was a government, just before we get back to Maria, is, is that was just addicted to secrecy. You go back to uh, yeah. the trip to Hawaii is a perfect yeah. example. Their yeah. inclination was always revert to secrecy. And Morrison, I'm glad you mentioned that because Morrison really only survived that crisis. I mean, he's, there's, I think you and I discussed this once before, but- because of the he, pandemic, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was in deep trouble as a result of that deception, right? Yeah. And uh, it, arguably, his prime ministership was stuffed at that point. But then the the, the the pandemic comes along, and like a giant sort of etch a sketch, it sort of just basically wipes everything else off the screen, understandably, right? And Morrison moves into you know coordinating mode and so forth. Everyone is concerned about the pandemic. It becomes the government's only agenda, where it didn't really have one. It removes. All the discussion about, you know, pretty much all the discussion about the bushfires, the inadequacies there, the the uh, the Hawaii holiday, and so forth. But the thing that Morrison has survived is a crisis over secrecy, right? And yet, within weeks, really, of the start of the pandemic, he does something secret, which is the thing he does with Greg Hunt. That to me is bizarre, and it goes. Uh, well, go- he never really learnt. No, that's right. He's, he, he, it was always about the form of looking like a leader, right? Yeah. Like the, the, his failure to look like um, a leader. And I mean, I guess you know. I mean, charitably, we could interpret what he did as a as a desperation not to make uh, mistakes after the bushfires, and his like lack of confidence in effect in his. Um, team because or his lack of confidence that he could persuade them in cabinet which is essentially how prime ministers enact Mm. that kind of control over the agenda of their um, government I mean I, I actually think that the role of Joyce and I guess McCormack is massively underplayed here. I mean, they, they seem to have had um, the bit, the best picture of the sort of political actors of what was going on. And they did, they did nothing about it. I mean, like the reality is, is that they, they had the ability to destroy the government. It's not like their threat was not a realistic Mm. one. And it is deeply disappointing that, they did not stand up for our system of government. No, well, they, they certainly didn't. Look, I want to get on to, um, just quickly before we finish, on to um, Labor and sort of where they are right now. But just one final thing on on this crisis, uh, and we've, we've all touched on it in various ways, talking about standards and talking about the advice that was coming to Scott Morrison and so forth. I think another underplayed aspect of this is the fact that uh, and as you were saying, Maria, at the start, you know, so many, so many conventions, so many um, protections in our system have been eroded over time, chipped away at, and we end up with the kind of uh, situation we have now. One of them is the politicisation of the public service. The appointment of Phil Gaitchens as the uh, head of Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Prime Minister's own former Chief of Staff, um, we we don't exactly know what his role is, but it looks to me, and I've spoken to some other senior bureaucrats in 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 um, in you know writing about this over the last few days. Uh, it it looks to me like the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet 
did not take sufficient control of this situation and ensure that the things were made public for a start, even if these bizarre arrangements were going to go ahead, even if the Prime Minister was was set on it, you know. Um, and it does rather raise the question about what happens when you just don't have a sufficiently robust public service. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think I think this, this is sort of the end point of – a long set of running processes that, you know, academics and, uh, you know, senior public servants, concerned former politicians, concerned current politicians, journalists have all been kind of pointing to, right, mm. that we are building risks into the political system. And when you do have a sort of a, a system that ultimately does rely on on norms, and, and to be blunt, like, sure, we could like have every sort of decision kind of gazetted and we could create more rules. But, you know, like there is actually kind of a trade-off, right? Like when you create more rules, people then have sort of moved to, to obstruct the rules, right? So, you know, we now have the problem of the fact that, you know, public servants don't necessarily always write down their advice because mm. they're afraid of FOI laws, right? Um, I'm not saying that FOI laws are bad, but you can kind of see that there's this sort of counterbalance. And that's actually why it really matters when politicians themselves, public servants themselves, don't respect the sort of the, the logic and norms of the system that public servants are supposed to give full and frank and robust advice, you know, not fully tempered by politics. And politicians are to make political decisions and take responsibility for those decisions, even though, you know, government has become more complex and there is more grey area in that. Mm. And that that is actually i guess the people who are outraged by this right the the politicians who are outraged by this you know i hope feel that sense that that's what's actually gone wrong here and it's not just the sort of personal insult to them and their competence yeah but, it's that it's a whole cultural slide in the way government has been done and yeah. politics exactly. has been transacted um Kieran, just finally uh, going to, to to labor i mean albanese was reading all of this and he didn't need to you know have sort of 2020 vision to do that because there was a fairly strong discourse of discontent around the issue of corruption in politics and so forth, you know, for, for in recent years. Um, but it is interesting, isn't it, that Albanese specifically referenced, and I'm talking about from opposition and now into government, specifically referenced the model of the How, uh, sorry, the Hawke government, and he did even at one stage talk about the Howard government uh, because he was trying to make a point, a sort of a non-political point in a sense, about how government needed to be done, that it ne- we needed to get back to orderly process, to proper cabinet government. Yeah. Funnily well, enough, well, there's it's a, a perfect of contrast, isn't it? It is, and there's, there's two uh, key points that I'd like to make on that. One is in the short sort of term reaction to it, uh, the the news of these extra portfolios, and then sort of a longer term strategic um, view at it. So maybe the sort of the tactics, and then the the strategy. So the tactics of responding to that news saw Albanese on Monday after the report emerged on Saturday. He was surprised that there there wasn't a big kerfuffle on Sunday immediately. That it wasn't front page everywhere and front page Monday. It wasn't. Uh, he was surprised by that because um, he saw it as such a, a, a breach of our system and mm. our conventions. So what you saw him do was a, a big sort of set piece news conference in his courtyard at Parliament House to elevate the issue. 
and and he got the advice from PMC that morning, and then uh, talked about the five portfolios, and he, he did it on his own, and he was seeking to elevate the issue so that everyone took notice, and by that I mean all of us in the fourth estate as well. Mm. So that worked. That worked in terms of elevating this issue. He got out there and did it. The other sort of broader, longer-term thing that he's doing here uh, and his government is doing is that if you look back at, say, the Howard Costello period off the back of Hawke Keating, they were able to frame that Labor period as being um, which is ironic given all the reforms they achieved in the labour period, but as, as not being economic, good economic managers, that they created debt and so on, and and then they were the ones that were going to rein it in, and, and so they were the good econ- economic managers as opposed to the, the Labor Party. And so the modern-day Labor government ministers know that this period in government is the time when you frame your opponent for a long-term in in, to stay in government and to frame your, your opponent and keep them in opposition. And so if we sort of do this parallel with that period of saying Labor weren't good economic managers, according to Howard Costello, according to Albanese and his team, the Liberals are not fit to govern. They're a circus and they can't govern properly. And so this is what the narrative that they're, try, they're trying to establish in well, uh, you'd, you'd the say, longer term. I, I agree with that. But you'd say an even more colourful example is, and more recent is what Abbott and, and uh, Hockey and so forth were saying about the previous Labor government under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. You know, mm. because they've, they'd, of course, had to, they'd, you know, R- Rudd had run on that sort of I'm a, I'm a greater f- fiscal conservative than, than Howard sort of line, this mm. reckless spending must stop and all that sort of stuff. But then the GFC had happened. Uh, they were within sight of, uh, you know, delivering a surplus and had to, you know, start really stimulating the economy. They got a lot of criticism for it. Abbott made the whole debt and deficit argument relentlessly uh, and and they got in. So yep. they made that stick, didn't they? It's they the did. same I point. Think, yeah, it is exactly the same point. And I think it was building on that legacy of the yeah. former. So the coalition have been good at that. Labor's learnt that, that, that this lesson and they're trying to turn it back on the coalition to keep them in opposition for yeah. as long as possible. Well, and, and t- let's not forget, though, that the, the – the Abbott government sort of failed to do the the second half of that act, which the Howard government was much more successful at. Exactly, which was to do the job well. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. And and of course the the fourteen fifteen budget was such a breach of of you know had so many broken promises Promise. in it that it basically ended the credibility of of Abbott's prime ministership and 100%. it was really you know fell away from there. Uh, but yeah, the, I suppose the f- final point to make on that though is that. Maybe in a sense, Maria just made it, but there, there's some substance to what Albanese was saying as well. It's oh, not just, I mean, he's yeah. talking about putting together a multiple term, term government. Yeah. He, he wants to model himself on the governing success of those two big slabs of government, you know, Hawke, Keating, and Howard, you know, the, um, mm. the, the, the big periods, you know, there, where, there, you, where you truth. put together multiple terms. To and you but, do that by actually having proper processes. Yeah, and also not giving a sucker an even break. So yeah. you basically just got to make sure that it's this is in the public consciousness, that this is something that, we, sure, we get it, mm. but in terms of these breaches, but there needs to be, they need to drill it home and, and to so a what, certain extent. Yeah. And so what risk, therefore, is there in Dutton in how he behaves now? Well, it's a, the, the, the huge challenge for him is, and, and people have been pointing to it, that he, he's been a bit wishy-washy in his criticism, but it's difficult for him to just completely slam Morrison because he 
that the legacy of the the former government um, through the pandemic and any other strengths they might have had in terms of getting Australia through and so on, he is a big part of that. He was a big part of that government, so he can't completely slam him. But he was one of the deceived ministers, wasn't he? He was, but you can't. Like his view is, I think that you can't completely throw him out. Um, you know, and and you know, repudiate him to the point of saying get out of parliament and so because on. Because that does Labor's work for and, him. And their legacy, whatever legacy they had through the pandemic, is completely um, trashed, yeah. incinerated. Yeah. Interesting point. Well, I mean, I guess for Dutton, though, like, Labor's doing the job for him. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Dutton feels um, mixed feelings about this yes, because it certainly totally. does torpedo Morrison's ability to to return to office and who is uh, Dutton's rival. And given those polling results today in the nine newspapers, I'm sure he's quietly relieved that this scandal is going on for his main rival. I must say, um, I wrote a few weeks ago in a column that uh, no Prime Minister had disappeared from view quicker than Scott Morrison. I don't think that's the case now. <laughs> <laughs> no. He's, he's, he's back, at one least, of, one, uh, one at least the in things, the uh, discussion. It's incredible. No, it's, it's and, and legacy so quickly demolished is, is quite extraordinary. Mm. But just to pick up on that poll that uh, Mara said, uh, uh, the one thing that really jumps out at me is the beauty of low expectations in politics yeah. when Anthony Albanese's campaign had its hiccups and, you know, uh, he's, uh, I think a lot of people sort of, he was vote, they voted for Labor, but they weren't necessarily convinced that he was the best performer. Mm. He's, he's off to a really strong start and all he had to do was put one foot in front of the other and people would have said, oh gosh, this guy's good, actually quite good after all. Yeah, because he's putting one foot in front of another for a purpose, mm. as in walking toward a sort of Substantive policy achievements and so forth. Whether, but, but you know, whether, is, whether they delivered or not, that remains to be seen. But, but the comparison but, I'm, I'm making is like you know with Rudd and Turnbull, where they yeah, both came or in. Or Obama, for example. Obama, you know, perfect yeah. example, where there's stratospheric expectations, you can't meet them. Yeah. Whereas for Anthony Albanese, he came in with the lowest expectations, and then he's exceeding them by a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's plenty more to run in this, and as uh, as I said at the start, we've had this discussion without any, uh, uh, you know, without actually having seen the Solicitor General's advice yet. So we'll we'll uh, watch that with interest. Um, and uh, thanks so much, uh, Kieran, for being with us today. It's always great to have you. Loved insights. it. Thank you. And thanks, Mara. Lovely to have you here as always. My pleasure. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, look forward to your company again next week. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.